magi or wise men were scholars and priests from the East who studied everything from alchemy to ancient religious manuscripts to the stars. God revealed himself to these magi through the ancient instruction of the prophet Daniel and the star of Bethlehem. They figured out through their studies that a king was born of the Jews. Isn't it fascinating that the first people in the world to recognize the arrival of the king were Gentiles? They knew that this was not just any king. They knew this child would be the source of massive cosmic shifts. They understood that the world was about to experience change on a scale never seen before. The Magi were blessed to meet the Savior. Interestingly, they brought gifts that reflected what would be the life and work of this child. Gold speaks of his kingship. Frankincense is incense for embalming, which speaks of his death for our sins. He is the Savior. And finally, myrrh is anointing oil, which tells us that he is God's anointed, the Messiah. Good morning, everyone. Let me try that one more time. Good morning, everyone. Oh, so good to have you here today in this minus 24 weather. But it's sunny, right? So we've got it made. Amen? Oh, I wasn't very convincing, but good enough for me. So we're talking about the Wenceslas legacy. And what we mean by that is we're talking about the work that Wenceslas did in fact, the work that he did when he was a king in the year of 10th century, uh, 900s, um, was he was careful to give firewood, food, clothing, whatever the need may be to those that were around him that were in need. And some of you know the hymn. I'm not going to launch into this, uh, you know, the singing of that great Christmas carol. But when you hear it, remember what it's all about. It's all about giving and all about sharing. And I'm so thrilled that on the day that little Micah is being dedicated is the day that we celebrate Micah's grandfather's legacy of giving up north. Isn't that neat this morning? So that, we had the little dedication for Micah, but we celebrated also Max Thunder, Micah's grandpa's legacy of caring for the needy up north. That's what Cross Church is about. That's what it means to be a Christian. Now, for some of you, as, we've, as we enter this Christmas season, uh, you might be feeling a little bit overwhelmed by this season. Uh, how many know that there's only 13 days left till Christmas? And some of you are thinking, oh, no, I haven't even started my Christmas shopping yet. Anybody like that here? <laughs> yeah, so you, you might be like these kids here. Hang on a sec there. 13 days until Christmas. I think this is one of the best Christmas cards I've ever seen in my life. Joy, what joy. You know, as I was looking at, uh, at this picture, this is a rendition, I don't know who drew that, but I was, we're looking at Gid King Wenceslas caring for the poor, the needy, the cold, and you look at what he's wearing, this beautiful long coat, this long, beautiful, warm coat, and this poor servant boy 
He's got, got a light jacket, and somehow I don't know if the artist really got the picture of who King Wenceslas is, but uh, I, I want to say this to you. During this Christmas season, uh, I want you to stop and consider the people around you. Consider the needs around you. And remember that as Christians, we are known by the gifts we give, not just uh, to the people in our own lives, but to the people who are truly in need. And so, again, we're thrilled. Over 200, almost 220 boxes for um, our Samaritan's Purse, the Christmas shoe boxes, thrilled about that. Almost 40 hampers, and uh, there's still money coming in and things coming in that we're able to give to the poor, so we're delighted by that. Now, I want to introduce you to a brand new word this morning to help you get over that, that lack of joy. And it's a word, it's, it's, a, it's a Norwegian word, and it's pronounced huga. Could you say that with me? Try it one more time. Huga, that's right. So here's what huga means. Um, <laughs> I know it's a strange name, but it's, it's, I'll tell you, it's a big sensation right now if you're, if you're following the media at all or if you're on Instagram. Uh, apparently, there's some 2 million posts with that hashtag huga. Uh, it's on Twitter, Facebook, etc. And uh, broadly speaking, it means an approach to living that embraces positivity and enjoyment of everyday experiences. In other words, huga is, is, is chilling, is chilling out, relaxing, and enjoying what God's brought into your life and not getting uptight. Um, the authors of the book on huga, and again, this is something that I think it's been going for almost 200 years in Norway, they're actually quite, the Norwegians are quite taken with the fact that we in the West have latched onto this idea and uh, they explain why they think people are loving this idea. And it's, quote, I think it's because a lot of people in different countries are having the experience of growing richer, but not necessarily happier. And so the idea of huga is that we are, I know it sounds strange, uh, it's the idea that we are, are not concentrating or focusing on ourselves and what we want, but we are saying, look, I'm happy with what I have. Uh, I'm going to stop pursuing stuff and stop pursuing money. I'm, I'm going to stop getting myself all tied up in knots over my, my possessions, and I'm actually going to start caring about people. So this is what Huga is. It's a movement away from having stuff and being materialistic towards loving people, caring for people, and being happy with what we have. Now, I'm going to say this. If we as Christians would only do what the Bible says, we would actually be living out huga, and I wouldn't have to teach you a Norwegian word this morning because the Bible clearly teaches us to be thankful and to be grateful for what we've been given and to be concentrating on the people around us. Now, they've done some studies, and they discovered that, uh, that the majority of people, uh, almost 60% of people said that they believed that families are not as close as they used to be. And the fact of the matter is, is we, we simply don't pay attention to one another anymore. I was reading a, a book um, by a, he's a, he's, he's a self-professed millennial. He says the problem with millennials now is that they have, the, literally have hundreds and hundreds of friends on Facebook. They are connected in, through all the social media, but they're the most lonely generation that has ever been recorded. Isn't that interesting? In fact, they're saying that 
it's, it's alarming because suicide rates amongst young people, especially millennials, is hitting uh, record heights. I've never seen anything like it. And this is strange considering we're more connected to people than we've ever been, and yet we're so lonely. And I'm gonna tell you folks, our problem is that we have forgotten what really matters in life, to be content with what we have and to love the people who are around us. And so in this holiday season, as I introduce this new word to you, this huga, uh, I want to remind you that Jesus Christ has called us to love him and to love others. And this sums up what life is all about. Uh, we don't add to that, we don't take away from that. Life is about relationships. Life is about loving one another. Well, this morning, what I'd like us to do is I'd like us to look at the Magi, who, in their own way, which you will see in a moment, teach us a little bit about Huga. And um, uh, as we talk about the Magi, in case you don't know who the Magi are, the Magi are sometimes called the three wise men, uh, sometimes uh, called uh, magicians, um, we, uh, we see, call them the three kings. Maybe some of you have sung that hymn before, that Christmas carol, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Well, here's what we know about the Christian faith, the Christian life, is that Christians are givers. That's, that's what a true Christian is. We give, we share, we love, we serve, we care for others. And wherever you go in the world, you are going to see the footprints of Christians, of believers. There have been schools established. There have been clinics and hospitals established around the world. Uh, we, uh, as Christians, have, have literally gone to the very poorest parts of the world, and we've helped the very poorest of the poor. When there's a disaster, Christians are the first ones on, on site to care for and meet the needs of those who are, who are in distress. This is what it means to be a Christian. In fact, that is what King Wenceslas was all about. He saw the need around, around him, and he was the first one on, on the site to take care of the poor and needy. Do you want to know something? Uh, Wenceslas became the patron saint of the Czech Republic. The Czech people recognized that he is truly one of the great sons of that nation, and so they recognized him as a saint. Now, don't anybody go away from here saying Pastor Allen believes in saints. I'm not saying that. What I am saying, however, is that these people recognize that this is what it truly means to be a Christian. This is what it really means to be a saint in the true sense of the word, is that we care for and meet the needs of others. So this is what we see in Wenceslas. In fact, our own son, Nicholas Duncalf, our, our second middle child, he is actually in Israel right now doing this very thing. He is working in a food bank, and he's going to be there for a year. Uh, we were concerned that maybe he'd be lonesome for us over Christmas. We said, Nicholas, do you want us to, to uh, scratch some money together and bring you home for Christmas? Because, oh, no, this, I'm having a great time here. I'll just stay put. Thank you very much. And so that really made me feel wonderful. He's having a great time. He's having a great time serving the poorest of the poor, the needy people there in Israel. Well, that's really what the whole Christmas story involves. It involves, uh, it involves poor people. In fact, all the people involved in the Christmas story, by the way, are poor people. And we we've got something to learn there. And that's really what I want to talk about this morning. I want, to, I want to talk about what we learn from the Magi. Now, when you look at that story, that picture, the first thing that comes to mind is maybe that Christmas carol, We Three Kings of Orient Are, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, and of course, there's, there's, 
that picture there of the wise men around the Virgin Mary and, and baby Jesus. Um, there's a lot of mythology and legend that goes with this story. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to just sort of clear up some of the mythology and then concentrate on what the facts are and how that applies to us. So we, we see here uh, the, the Magi, the wise men. By the way, the Magi is, is not really a word that we can translate, so we leave it as the word Magi. There's, there's no sort of English equivalent. Uh, the word magic comes from the word Magi because the Magi were a people who were fluent in, uh, in the sciences of their day. They were astronomers. They, they, understood, they could read the stars. They understood where all the planets were. They, they were uh, astrologers. They believed that the world was controlled by the zodiac signs. They were considered uh, a, a, a group of priests uh, who would minister uh, unto the gods for their people. And so they're, they're a very special group of people. Now, uh, let me first of all tell you what we what we do know for sure. We, we know that there probably uh, wasn't, wasn't necessarily three, three wise men. There may have, but we don't know for sure. Uh, the reason we say three wise men is because it talks about three gifts, the gold, frankincense, and... Or, good, you're with me on this. So that's why we think probably three wise men, but there may have been more. Um, in, the, in the Christmas carol, it talks... Uh, about what, what their names are. Does, it, does anybody remember the names of the wise men? There's Casper, the friendly ghost. No, just Casper. There's Belth- Belthazer. Did I say it right? I, I, I have it written here, but I still can't say it. And then Malchior. Did I get that one right, Carolyn? Our teacher? Yeah. Okay, so, but we don't know if that's their names. It's, someone gave them the names, and they've stuck ever since. The other thing that some people think is that, that these three wise men represent or are descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and that's why one of them usually appears as an Ethiopian. But again, all of this is conjecture. We have no idea, uh, but there are things that we do know. Uh, before I go any further, I got to tell you that as I was studying this, I discovered something very, very intriguing. In the 12th century, there's a bishop by the name of Reinald of Cologne, and he was digging away in the garden, and he found three skulls. And being a bishop, seeing three skulls, the first thing that came to his mind was, "Ah, I have found the remains of the three wise men," <laughs> and. And he declared that the, the, socket, the eyes were still in the sockets of these skulls. And, and that uh, the reason he knew that they were the wise men is because he found the skulls facing Jerusalem. That's <laughs> a, a first sign that they must be uh, the, the wise men. So what he did is he dug up these three skulls with their eyes still in the sockets. And he uh, then placed them in his church. And it became then a place of pilgrimage where people from all over Europe would come and see these three wise men. Well, and by the way, you can still visit this site to this day. You can still go and see the, the skulls of the wise men. Now, in case anybody didn't get it, uh, this is not true. Okay, this is what they think. Uh, I don't believe that for a minute. Uh, and if you do believe that, great. Let's do a trip to Cologne. I've always wanted to go there. And, uh, and you can go see the skulls. Now, what we do know about these wise men 
is they probably were not riding into uh, Jerusalem on camels. They were Persians, and they were most likely uh, coming into Jerusalem riding on, on massive, majestic, noble horses. Uh, these, these were what we would call king makers. And when Herod, the Bible says, when Herod had the visitation from these magi, it says that he was literally shaking. He was, he was so frightened because when these wise men appear, they say to Herod, Herod, where is the king of the Jews? And Herod says, well, hold on a minute. I'm the king of the Jews. And the wise men said, no, no. We want to see the real king of the Jews. Where, where was he born? And uh, if, if you know the story, and you can read that yourself in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, Herod is so terrified and so frightened by the news of the birth of the king of the Jews that he actually kills all the babies ages 1 to 2. And it's a time of great mourning in, in Bethlehem. Now, these wise men, they, they appear, and they know a lot. In fact, they know what the Jewish people don't know. They know that there is a king born. How on earth did the Magi know that a king was born? How did they know that Jesus was born? How did they know when to even arrive in Jerusalem to see the baby Jesus? Well, if you begin to do a study of Scripture, uh, the first thing you'll see is that in Matthew chapter 2, there's not really a lot said about the Magi except that they visited but the Bible does, in fact, say quite a bit about the Magi. And the first uh, place that we find the mention is in Daniel chapter 2. And here's what it says. It says, Then the king, that's Nebuchadnezzar, he appointed Daniel to a high position and made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon as well as chief over all his wise men. Remember, wise men, Magi, kings, they're all, it's all synonymous. It all means the same thing. They're all, they're the, we're talking about the same people. Daniel, in case you don't know, was one of, the, one of the people that was captured by the Babylonians and taken into exile. And there in Babylon, Daniel distinguished himself as truly a great man of God who had the capacity, the ability to interpret dreams. And so when the king had a dream and none of his wise men, none of his magi were able to interpret his dream, they said, well, hey, what about Daniel? Have you asked Daniel? And the king brought Daniel in, and you know the story. Daniel was able to interpret. Now, because of that, Nebuchadnezzar recognized that this is truly a great man of God, that he, is, he distinguished himself as being greater than his wise man. And so he put two and two together and said, you know what we've got to do is we've got to make him the chief of all the wise men. If Daniel is the chief, then these wise men will be truly wise indeed. And so we, we see then that Daniel, as chief of the wise men, is instructing these magi in, the, in the, the, the faith and the theology of the Jewish people. He would have taught them all about Yahweh, would have taught them about the fact that Yahweh is the one and only God. They, he would have taught the the. the the Magi all about the sacrificial system, about God's plan to, uh, that to use his own son to, to, to bring salvation to his people. Daniel would have taught the Magi really the whole gospel. And so this is why what we find in Daniel chapter 9 really quite interesting. 
we come to Daniel chapter 9 and verses 21 to 26, it's, it tells the prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. And I want you to notice this. Uh, Daniel says, as I was praying, Gabriel, whom I'd seen in an earlier vision, came swiftly to me and then gives him instruction. I want you to notice the name of that angel. That angel is Gabriel. Does that ring a bell with anybody? Does anybody remember hearing about Gabriel? Gabriel is the one, is the angel who shows up and speaks to whom? To Mary, speaks to Joseph and tells Mary and Joseph what's about to happen. So I want you to notice the connection. It's really important. So here's Daniel. The angel Gabriel's come to him and is, is about to tell Daniel about the coming of the Messiah. Now, here's the thing. There are many skeptics and cynics out there, out in the world that don't know Christ, that don't know our faith, that don't know Christianity, and they will stand on their soapbox and they will, they will proclaim that Christianity is not dependable, that Jesus was, not, was a mythological figure, that he's not a real person, that when Jesus died on the cross, that was a shock to the disciples, which it was, but that it definitely was not what Jesus wanted, and that when Jesus was de dead and when he died and when he was buried, uh, that the disciples had to come up with some kind of a narrative, some kind of a story to, to explain what happened, and that's how Christianity was born. So here's what you need to know today. Next time somebody tells you that kind of rubbish, you just say, hang on a minute here. The birth of Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection was not a coincidence and it was not an accident. It was absolutely according to God's will, according to God's plan. In fact, the Bible prophesies the birth of Christ and the death of Christ way before the event actually happens. And so here we have it, hundreds of years before Jesus is born, we find that Gabriel tells Daniel when Jesus is going to be born. So we read in Daniel 9.25, it says, Now listen and understand, um, and don't, don't panic about these, the wording of this verse, I'll explain it to you in a moment. He says, seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler, the anointed one, comes. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. Okay, so you're wondering, what is seven sets of seven plus seven, 62 sets of seven will pass? What does all that mean? It's all, I, I don't understand that. Well, um, let me just quickly explain it as simply as I can. And if, if, if you don't understand it, don't panic. The, the real thing that's important this morning is that you get the bottom line. So here's how we get to the bottom line. So here's, here's what Gabriel's saying. He's saying what you need to do is you need to, to calculate the years from the time that Jerusalem is rebuilt, from the time that the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem. Now, if you have read your Bible, uh, particularly Nehemiah, you'll know that Nehemiah was given, uh, given the go-ahead or given the decree from Artaxerxes to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild it. Gabriel says to Daniel, calculate from the day that that command is given, calculate the years, and that's going to tell you when the Messiah comes. And so here's what you do, folks. We know when, when that's going to take place. We know, we know we've got we very clear um, uh, historical records. We know exactly when the decree is given for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And folks, when you do the multiplication, 
you, you'll discover that the sevens are actually seven years. So it's seven times seven, which is 49. And then 62 times seven, which is 434. We get 483 years. Folks, when you do the arithmetic, you'll find that from the moment that the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem, for the people to leave exile and go back to Jerusalem, it's exactly 483 years from that time that Jesus Christ is born. I want you to see something here. It says, the anointed one. Now, in English, we know that the anointed one is Jesus. The anointed one in Hebrew is Messiah. The anointed one in Greek is Christ. And so we recognize that Daniel is talking about the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, it gets even more thrilling when you look at the next verse. In verse 26, it says, after this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be what? Killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. What Gabriel is telling Daniel is not only about the birth of Jesus, he's telling Daniel about the death of Jesus. It's impossible for us to discuss the Christmas story without also discussing the Easter story. Because Jesus was born to this earth, not only to teach us in the ways that we should go, not only to be our king, the king of kings, he came as our priest to mediate between us and God, but look at this, he also came as the sacrificial lamb, as a sacrifice for our sins. The anointed one will be killed. And everybody will look on and say, man, what is the point of that? In fact, the cynics and the skeptics of Christianity, they look on and say, really? You're, you're, you're Jesus? Your God died on a cross? That doesn't make sense. Who ever thought of that? God did. Because God knew that we needed a Savior. He knew that we needed someone to die in our place. And if you remember from the Kingdom of Eden series, you'll remember that in the Garden of Eden, God said that there would be a death penalty for, for disobedience. Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and the Bible says that they died spiritually right on the spot, and that they eventually would die physically. God knew that we needed a Savior. We needed someone to come along and die in our place so that we could be reborn spiritually. That's what Easter's about, or what Christmas is about. It's what we're both about. It's about us getting new life through Jesus Christ. Folks, when you do the calculations, you discover that Jesus Christ, in fact, was crucified in 33 AD, exactly as Daniel prophesied it would happen. Now, it gets even more exciting. God doesn't leave any stone unturned. He doesn't leave, uh, leave anything for us to say, well, you know, that's, we, can't really, we can't really use that scripture. We can't really count that as, 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 as being important to the story. You know, like, what about the star, the star that, that led the wise men to Bethlehem? What was that all about? Sounds like something out of Disneyland or Disney World. But here's what the Bible says. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. The prophet Isaiah, he foretells the day when the magi, who are called 
the people that walked in darkness. In fact, all Gentiles were called the people who walked in darkness. Anybody who was not Jewish at the time that Isaiah made this prophecy would be called the people that walked in darkness. And here the Magi see this great light. Now, folks, I want you to know something. These Magi, they knew the teachings and the writings of Daniel. And they were watching the clock. They were counting down the years. These magi were scholars. They knew the scripture. They knew the Hebrew scripture. And they definitely knew the teachings of Daniel. Because remember, Daniel was their chief, the chief magi. And so they were watching the years. The Jewish people weren't watching the years. They weren't aware of what was going on. But the magi heard the prophecy of Daniel. Did that mean the Jewish people didn't have the prophecy? Yes, they did have the prophecy. But God opened the eyes of the Magi so that they could see the truth. And so this is why we find the Magi showing up when Jesus was, was born. They see the fulfillment of God's great plan of salvation. Now, I don't know about you, but when I, when I read this stuff and study this, this is so thrilling to me. It's so exciting. It's so exciting to know, folks, that our faith is not an accident. It's not just somebody, you know, sitting down and writing a bunch of rubbish out and saying, okay, believe in this now. We're, we're seeing prophecies that we can look back in time and see, hey, our faith was prophesied well, well in advance. It's supported by these ancient prophecies. And that when the fact of the matter is, is that when, it, when it comes into fruition, when it comes to pass, we can say, well, this really is God's plan. Having this information is great, but James warns us about being hearers of the word and not doers of the word. Here's what I've discovered about so many people who call themselves Christians, and by the way, it was sort of, I think it's the way I was raised, anybody in my generation was raised this way. Uh, the thing is, we've got to try to give as, get as much information crammed into Christians' heads as possible. we just got to keep giving them give them information, information, information. And then we would, we would feel that, you know, our job was done. If, if, if Christians had lots of information and understood their Bible and could quote the scriptures from, from Genesis to Revelation, then, then, you know, our job was done and we've, 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 we've trained them in the way they should go. James would say, hang on a minute here. It's not good enough just to know information about the Bible, know information about God, to know the prophecies of Daniel, to be able to interpret them. It's great, two thumbs up, but it's not enough. James says, you've got to be a doer of the word. You've got to put it into practice. You've got to find the application. What does the story of the Magi mean to me personally? What do I learn from that? How am I challenged? What do I need to do? You notice we moved from what I need to know, now we've moved to what I need to do. Folks, this is what authentic Christianity is. It's a, it's a faith that has knowledge, but it also is a faith that has action. And you cannot divorce the two. The minute that you divorce the two, then you don't have authentic Christianity. You have either religion, if you're just cramming your head full of knowledge, or if you're just active, then you're just a humanitarian. True Christianity marries the two. It brings together truth, and it brings together Christian action. That, my friends, is what a true Christian is. Somebody who acts out the word of God.
So what do we learn here? Well, we learn that, first of all, these wise men were hungry for God. That was their desire. That was their longing. Well, everybody else was caught up with the cares and the concerns of their own lives. You know, the Pharisees were caught up in their position and their power and their authority and, and, uh, and, and their rank and being praised by all, the, all their countrymen. We find the Magi, they don't care what anybody thinks of them. They're busy studying Scripture. They want to know God. They want to worship God. And so that's why we read this verse here in Matthew 2, 1 to 2. Some wise men come, came from uh, eastern lands, arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose. And what does it say? And we've come to worship him. So here it is, folks. We got people that have lots of information crammed in their head, but they're not doing anything with it. And these wise men arrive on this scene and they say, we want to worship Jesus. We want to worship Jesus this king, this king of the Jews. Notice that it is Gentiles who recognize the Messiah. It's not the Jewish people. You know, Jesus had a real problem with the Pharisees. Those were the religious leaders. Man, the fact, the Bible says that they were experts in the law. Nobody knew the scripture better than they did, and yet they didn't recognize Jesus. They didn't recognize his birth. It took Gentiles who knew very little about the faith as compared to the Pharisees, yet they're the ones that recognize the Messiah. Not only do they recognize the Messiah, they recognize their need of the Messiah, their need of the anointed one. Let me ask you a question today, because it's very easy for us to be like the Pharisees. Go through life, we're religious, go to church, I got... I was dedicated as a baby. I was baptized. I, was, I went through catechism. I can remember, I know John 3.16 off by heart. I give, put money in the offering plate. Um, I'm involved in church, and so I think I've, I've, I can tick off all the boxes, right? Are you sure that you are where you need to be in terms of your relationship with God? The Pharisees, they were convinced that they were the most spiritual people in all of Israel. And yet Jesus said, <laughs> far from it. You're not spiritual. You're a brood of snakes. You're vipers. You have no idea who God is. Folks, this is what happens when you and I forget that God has called us to live out our faith. See, at the end of the day, it's not how clever you are and how many verses you can quote and how much information you've got crammed into that brain of yours. It's are you living out your faith? Are you doing what Jesus has called you to do? So here are these wise men. They're truly poor in spirit. And look what God says about those who are, this is what Jesus says about those who are poor in spirit. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you understand that that word blessed, and a lot of people don't know this, but that word blessed, uh, a more accurate translation of that would be wealthy or Happily rich, happily wealthy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus really wanted to shock his listeners. Now, we hear that, and we're not shocked by that because many of us have heard it many, many times, and some of us here have even memorized the Beatitudes. But Jesus says, if you really want to know what true wealth is, what true riches is, 
It's to be poor in spirit. You say, Pastor Allen, what on earth does that mean? Well, that's why I like the New Living Translation translation of that verse. It goes, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Or as the message puts it, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. Isn't that fantastic? When you and I come to the place in our lives where we say, God, I'm throwing out my hands. I can't make it on my own anymore. I'm, God, I am trying to, to sort this life out in my own wisdom and my own strength. And God, I'm making such a mess of it. Jesus says, when you get to that place where you recognize how impoverished you are, when you recognize what a mess your life is, when you get to the end of your rope, when you come to that place where you say, God, I can't make it another day without you, Jesus is saying, hallelujah, praise God. The angels are singing, now you get it. This is what it means to be a Christian. You come to the place in your life where you say, God, I can't do it on my own anymore. But you know, we've, we've, we've become so clever here in the West and, and so, uh, so self-confident and, and so self-sufficient. We've come to the place where we really don't need God. See, Pastor Allen, that sounds awfully heretical. Well, I'm only, I'm only calling it as I see it. And I think all of us today would have to recognize or agree that, in fact, yeah, that really is how we are. We are so, so self-sufficient. We've come to the place where we really, you know, we can manage on our own and, and we only call on God in the big emergencies. But Jesus says, those who recognize how poor they are, how much they need God's help. Those are the ones who will be blessed by God. Well, guess what, folks? I said that everybody involved in the Christmas story was poor. These magi are fabulously wealthy in worldly terms, but they were poor in spirit. They recognized like nobody else recognized how much they needed a Messiah, how poor they really were. And they say... To Herod, <laughs> show us where he is. Show us where the king of the Jews is because we have got to see him. We've got to worship him. Let me ask you this this morning. Have you come to that place yet? Are you at the end of your rope? We're coming to the end of 2016. I know for some of you, this has been one brutal year. Just wonder how on earth you got this far. If you've come to the place where you're saying, man, this was a tough year for me. My life, man, what a disaster this past year. In fact, some of you maybe have backslidden and you've said things and done things you shouldn't have done and you, you're not happy with your life over the past year or two or 10 or 20. There's good news for you today. This is the gospel. This is the good news. If you come to the end of your rope, then Jesus says, now you're wealthy. Now you're rich. Now you have the blessings of heaven at your disposal. The heavens are yours. The kingdom of heaven is yours. I know that some of you here today are sitting here and, and it, you came to church this morning. Maybe you've had a fight on the way here. You, fight, you fought with your kids. You fought with your spouse. Uh, maybe you got a ticket. Uh, I don't know what happened on your way to church this morning. But this is, it's been tough. Well, the good news today is that God knows all about your struggle. And all you have to do is say, God... I can't do it anymore. All you have to do is bend your knee to him and say, God, 
forgive me my sin. God, come into my situation, come into my marriage, come into my family. God, I need a healing from you. And God says, through Jesus Christ, you will be truly blessed. Your needs will be met. Now, I got, I got to point something out to you in closing. These, uh, these magis are coming to worship God. And yeah, you heard it right. Jesus is God. And some of you were shocked when I said that last week, but I'm going to just say it again. Jesus is God, 100% God, not half God, half man. He's 100% God, 100% man, and he's absolutely worthy of our praise and our worship. In fact, Jesus declares that he's God. The interesting thing, folks, is that although the, the Pharisees had a hard time accepting this, in fact, they they didn't accept it. In fact, they wanted to kill him at the beginning of his ministry. And if you know the Gospels, you know that there was one point they wanted to push him off a cliff. But it's these Gentiles, these people who are not the people of God, the people who walked in darkness. It's these Gentiles who say, you know what? Jesus is the, is the answer to all my needs. And so it's to Jesus that they bring these three gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The gold, folks, represents Jesus' kingship. He is the king of kings. The gift of frankincense is, well, it's, it's incense, and it's the gift for a priest. And they recognize that Jesus is the priest. He's the one, the mediator. He's the one that, that makes it possible for us to come to God. But they also bring... And this is a strange gift to bring a little baby. They bring some myrrh. Myrrh is the, is the material or the substance used for embalming, used for burial, the burial of a dead person. They understood that Jesus was a king. They understood that Jesus was a priest. They understood that Jesus would be the sacrificed lamb. Did they understand the full picture? I don't know. I think that part of this is prophetic in nature. But what you do need to know is that when you come to worship God, to worship it means that you are a giver. You're giving praise. You're giving of what you have. And the greatest way that you and I could ever worship and praise God is by giving and meeting the needs of others. Jesus said the whole law of Moses and the prophets can be summed up in two simple statements. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second, love your neighbor as you love yourself. That, my friends, is what Christianity is all about. That's what Jesus Christ represents. And these magi, somehow under the tutelage of Daniel the prophet, came to the place where they understood that to truly worship God meant they needed to give. And I'm going to tell you this morning, that anybody here today who calls himself or herself a Christian, a true follower of Jesus Christ, then you'll be a giver as well. How thrilled I was that we were able to get these 39 hampers for our brother up north. Absolutely thrilled about that.
But there's lots of need around you. Folks, I want to encourage you. If you're feeling up tight and anxious and concerned about this season, the way to break that in you is a little bit of huga. Open your pockets up and give to somebody, anybody. Give to God, give to people in the streets, give to anybody in need, get to people in your life, friends, family, neighbors you know that are struggling. Give and watch the Spirit of God touch your heart and touch your mind and watch the joy and the peace that will flood your heart because that's what it means to be a Christian. We don't just hold information up here. We act on it. We give. Let's stand together and pray. Father, thank you this morning for your hand upon us and for the teaching that we find in your word. God, your word is rich, rich with information, rich with knowledge. It confirms our faith. It drives away our doubts. It confirms that the faith that we put in Christ is real and legitimate. But God, your word also informs us that we need to be more than just hearers of the word. We need to be doers. And we see in the Magi an example of what a true worshiper is. A worshiper is somebody who comes to Jesus, worships before Christ, submits to Christ, the anointed one, and gives to Christ. God, in this Christmas season, we pray that you would make us a generous people who share with those in need, knowing, God, that this best reflects your heart and best reflects who you are. And so we pray this in Jesus' name.